That chat is brought to you by Walters. Monday through Friday, Walters opens at noon for lunch, midday baseball watching, and even the occasional European soccer match. So if you find yourself around the ballpark during the day, make sure you walk on over to Walters. Walters is also the perfect place to watch football with friends, whether it be Monday, Thursday, or the weekend. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The one to Garcia. Swinging a ground ball right side. That's a base hit. Bell will score. Hernandez heading home. Blackman's throw will go toward third. And slotting in there. Out the call at third. Hernandez scores the second run. Ruiz is out at third. And into second is Luis Garcia. So it's a two-run single. Nationals lead three to nothing. Ray winds and pitches. Swing and a miss. Struck him out on a slider running to the inside. Ruiz dropped the ball, but Crone is walking away. And so he is out on strikes. Third strikeout for Josiah Gray. Wins an eight-pitch battle with C.J. Crone. Rainey delivers. Swinging a ground ball right side. Garcia has it. This should do it. He lobs it to Bell at first for the out that ends the game. And a curly W is in the books. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, September 28, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We are taping this in the 1 a.m. hour on Tuesday off a Nationals win. It's always nice doing these things off Nats wins as opposed to Nats losses. A 5-4 victory at the Colorado Rockies in Game 1 of a three-game series. What is the Nationals' final road series of the season? Nats get to 65-92 and on the season. We know the deal with Coors Field. It is not easy to pitch in Coors Field. The altitude, the mile-high air, those things have tormented pitchers for years. Well, I guess they're kind of the same thing, but you get the idea. But the Rockies, basically, since they started as a franchise like 30 years ago, have never been a good pitching team. Pitching in Coors Field is difficult. And while the Nationals had a few hiccups on Monday night, ultimately, The Nats end up doing a good job. I know things kind of fell apart for Josiah Gray, but for five innings, he looked really good. And the Nationals' bullpen, bit of a hiccup in that bottom of the ninth, but the bullpen gets a job done. Given, Mark, how bad the Nats' pitching has been this season, I think you take what we saw on Monday night and you run with it if you're Davey Martinez. I think this is one of the most impressive pitching performances in a while, to be honest, under the circumstances that we were talking about. Look, if I told you that he was going to hand over a 4-3 lead to the bullpen in the sixth inning, what do you think the odds were that they were going to maintain that lead? Now, there was one run scored by each team in the ninth, but up until the ninth, it's still 4-3, and they held on to that. I would not that I would have thought for sure they're going to lose the game, but I would have thought this ended up as a much higher scoring game than that. 
little more back and forth, a lot more drama late than there was. So under those circumstances, I actually think this was one of the best pitching performances they've put together in quite a while. And it started with Josiah Gray and yet fell apart in the sixth. But I thought he was better than what the final line would show. And I thought the bullpen, both Thompson, Finnegan, Rainey, really came through uh, in a very tough spot. Josiah Gray on Monday night, three runs in five and a third innings. But like Mark said, the outing was better than that line would suggest. Josiah began his outing with five scoreless innings. I mean, he was rolling through this game. You know, it wasn't perfect, but he was getting the job done. And when he got into some trouble, he was able to navigate his way out of the trouble. Josiah tossed a scoreless bottom of the first, striking out Trevor Story on four pitches with a runner on third. Josiah tossed a scoreless bottom of the fourth, striking out Elias Diaz with a runner on second base. But then he hit the wall in the bottom of the sixth inning. Now, Josiah Gray is a guy for whom the third time through the order penalty has very much been a thing so far in his brief major league career. Josiah in that bottom of the sixth is facing the Rockies lineup for a third time, and Gray ends up struggling in this inning. And he looked fatigued too watching him, but the results kind of bared out the fatigue uh, that you saw on Josiah. He gives up a leadoff single to Garrett Hampson, issues a five-pitch walk at Charlie Blackman, issues a four-pitch walk at Trevor Story. You know, Davey Martinez is really taking a chance here, although I, I would think Davey is probably trying to push Josiah a little bit, see what ends up happening. And what ended up happening was nearly a record-breaking grand slam given up. Josiah gives up a one-out bases-loaded three-run double by Ryan McMahon off the center field wall to cut the Nats' lead to 4-3. I don't know about you. I thought that that ball was out of here. I thought we were setting the record for most grand slams allowed in a season by a team. Thankfully, the baseball did not leave the yard and the damage was uh, ultimately limited to just the three runs in that inning. But great first five innings for Josiah. And then he pretty clearly ran out of gas in that bottom of the sixth. I was already composing the tweet in my head before the (laughs) ball landed about record setting 15th. Grand Slam. Thankfully, it wasn't, but it sure looked like it off the bat. And in that park, you just assume anything hit in the air is going to clear the fence. So here's the the weird thing. And in the moment, you maybe didn't think about it much, but I asked him about it afterwards, and, and he admitted that there was something to this. Go back to the top of the sixth. He comes up to bat with two outs and a runner on first. Stevenson throws, and Gray drops a bunt down out in front of the plate. It'll be picked up by the catcher, Diaz. He hurries his throw to first. And it's in time for the out. So Gray tries the surprise bunt with two down in the inning, but he is thrown out by the catcher two to three. And he has to hustle down the first baseline. He ends up getting thrown out, and that's the end of the inning. And now he's got to go right back to the mound to start the bottom of the sixth. And he didn't look like the same pitcher anymore. He did look fatigued. And you got to remember, this is the altitude. It's the first time he's pitched there, and it does have a different effect on you than somewhere else. And he actually admitted that it probably did have some impact on him. Yeah, if I think back on it, I definitely was a little bit more winded after that failed one attempt, but that's just part of the game. Obviously, you just have to be more conscious of what I'm doing at the plate there in terms of what I want to do for the team and looking at the score and things like that. But yeah, that was just a bad read on my part, and uh, it probably affected me just a little bit in that bottom of the sixth, but I'm not going to dwell on it too much. Just got to go out there and make my pitches whether I'm a little bit more gassed after a one attempt or not, just got to make my pitches. He probably needs to think that through a little more in his head and say, no, this isn't the right time to try to do something like that, given that situation and everything else. So consider that a lesson learned for him. But yeah, I mean, he lost all command there in the sixth. He walks back to back hitters, one of them on four pitches. And I can't say I was surprised at the three-run double that he gave up because he did seem like he was on fumes at that point. Now, I get why Davey's leaving him in. I think in the situation they're in, that's better for him 
to try to get out of that than it is to bring in Austin Voth at that point. Although I don't even think Voth was ready. They didn't have enough time to get him warmed up. So, you know, learning experience for him. But ultimately, I put this in the column of good start for Josiah Gray as opposed to some of the bad ones that he's had. It sounds like he probably gets one more against the Red Sox this weekend and a chance to finish out the year on a high note. But the last two, I think, have been pretty good. This one, the results weren't as good, but I liked what he did. I liked how he looked for the most part in that in that situation tonight. Yeah, I mean, not that the strategy matters here, but he was bunting with two outs in that top of the sixth inning. Was he? What, what was the deal with that? Was I, I mean, I guess he was bunting for a hit. Like, what, what was the thought process with that? Yeah. You know, I mean, he's an athlete. He probably thinks he can beat it out, and that might be his best hope, catch him by surprise. But again, you got to understand the situation. You're up four runs. You're at high altitude. There's two outs. Like, it's okay if you just make the last out of the inning, walk back to the dugout, take your time, take the mound, take your warmups and all that. So 23-year-old, maybe trying to do a little too much and um, may have paid the price for it. Thankfully, it didn't cost them the game. Yes. Well, thankfully, pitchers hit so we can have wonderful experiences like that. But yeah, man. I mean, competing in that altitude, it's not easy. We know that. And it's not just about balls flying at a course field or flying around course field because it's not always just home runs at course. There actually weren't any home runs in this game. You just get a lot of hits, balls hanging in the air, things of that nature. But it's also guys having to worry about cardio and their breathing, like something as, as literal as your breathing and simple as that. So, uh, but yeah, I'm with you. I think this falls into the bucket of a good outing for Josiah Gray. So if you're Taking a step back and looking at things, Josiah Gray, his first five starts with the Nats overall good, his next four starts with the Nats overall bad, his last two starts with the Nats overall good, and I hope that Davey does give Josiah one more start for the year. I guess it can be either Josiah or Patrick Corbin starting the season finale. To me, I think there's a lot more to be gained if Josiah Gray gets that start against the Red Sox. Yeah, there's also a chance Davey left it open that both of them could, because you could bring Josiah back on Saturday on full rest, and then Corbin on Sunday. Someone else would lose a start, either Fetty or Rogers, I guess, would be the two. He was going to see how this these next two days go, how they come out of it, how they're feeling. I do think he wants to give Corbin one more, just like every opportunity they have right now to try to let him go into the offseason feeling better about himself to do that. But I think based on the way that Josiah pitched in this game, yeah, you do want to give him another shot. And that's going to be a big start, actually, because the Red Sox, in all likelihood, these are going to mean everything to them these games this weekend. We're going to get to that later in the week, but it could be a, a big series. And for young players to go up against a team that is down to the wire in a pennant race, that can be a, an important experience for them as well. So I agree. I hope he does get another one. I think the fact that he did pitch well for the most part in this suggests that he will, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, I don't know yet. I'm not sure they've decided that yet, but yeah, I hope he does get it because that's going to be a good test for him to go into the offseason and have to face a potential playoff team uh, in a must-win game. You wonder to what extent how Corbin does in Game 2 of this series at the Rockies might dictate the pitching plan for that series against the Red Sox. I don't think Davey would ever admit to that, but I think it's only natural to wonder uh, about something like that. Well, Nats bullpen was good on Monday night. Give it full credit. Four Nats relievers combined to allow just one run in three and two-thirds innings. And some of the specifics here were impressive. So Austin Voth comes into the game, bottom of the six, runner on second, one out, Nats nursing a 4-3 lead. And Voth puts out the fire, retires two of the three batters he faces in the inning to prevent any more runs from scoring. That was big. Mason Thompson tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh, did issue a leadoff seven-pitch walk of Rymel Tapia, did give up a two-out single to Trevor Story, despite having had Story down at 1.12, but Thompson ultimately gets out of that inning unscathed. Then it is Kyle Finnegan in the bottom of the eighth inning, 
Not Tanner Rainey. Uh, and Finnegan does toss a scoreless bottom of the eighth. Again, he does put some guys on base, gives up a one-out single by Elias Diaz, issues a two-out wild pitch, issues a two-out six-pitch walk, a pinch hitter, Colton Welker. But Finnegan gets the job done. And then Tanner Rainey gets the save in the bottom of the ninth inning. He does, though, give up a run. Issues a two-out nine-pitch walk at Trevor Story. That was some battle between Rainey and Story. Uh, and Rainey had Story down 0-2, uh, but Story's a good hitter, we know. And then you got the two-out RBI double by C.J. Crone. But something that we had speculated, right, uh, moving Finnegan to the eighth, going with Rainey as a closer in the ninth. I was happy to see Davey try this on Monday night. And I would hope we see more of this. You know, I don't, I don't know how many more predicaments we'll have like this, but uh, I know the results weren't spectacular for Tanner Rainey, but he's done a good job since he got brought back up from AAA Rochester. And I think he deserves uh, some other ninth inning opportunities here. Yeah, I think as much as they have a closer at this point, it is Tanner Rainey for the final week of the season. And they didn't want to just throw him right into that fire when he came back from AAA. Want to give him a couple outings, get his feet wet. But what we've seen from him has really been lights out stuff. So that walk after the long at bat with Story is the first base runner he had allowed. He had retired 15 in a row since coming back from AAA. And as we said, he also remember his last three outings there, he had struck out nine in a row. So 15 and nine by my math is 24. That's eight perfect innings of relief until that walk. That's very impressive. The double, you know, unfortunately, you were hoping he'd get out of that without giving up the run, but he did. And then to his credit, battled right back, got the final out, and he looks good. He looks confident. I think he's feeling a lot better about himself. He's healthy, which I think we maybe have underestimated the fact that he wasn't fully healthy for the majority of this season. Dealt with stuff at the end of last year. Remember, finished the year on the IL, didn't have the normal offseason program. Comes to spring training and had, if I remember right, it was like a pectoral muscle, something going on there that kind of derailed him in spring training. He was on the COVID IL at one point. He had the shin, not a fracture, but like a stress reaction in his shin at one point. So, I mean, he really did deal with a lot this year. And maybe just now for the first time, he is feeling 100%. And that's good to see that he can be this guy when he's 100%. And I'll be fascinated to see what they do this winter as far as the bullpen's concerned. But I think it's safe to say that Tanner Rainey is going to be a big part of their plan, at least going into 2021. Yeah. And for those who watched the game on Masson, Rainey in his postgame conversation with Bob and FP did credit Jim Hickey for a mechanical adjustment that has helped Rainey to get right. So I think it's fair that we mentioned that because we've wondered about, you know, Hickey's status, you know, and him potentially not being back for next year and what's going on with the pitching this year. And is this guy Hickey doing anything of service? And at least in the mind of Rainey, Jim Hickey's helped Rainey out. So that's good to hear. Uh, something like that. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, He will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. 
Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of Legal Headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Escobar slightly open stance, knees bent. Now the pitch. Swing and a line drive to left. That's going to be a base hit. Toppy off with it. And one run will score. In from third is Keeboom, stopping at third of the play. Stevenson, Thomas to second. 
And on at first with his third hit of the game. And his 27th run batted into the year is Alcides Escobar. A run home. The bases are still loaded. And nobody out. It's the Nationals 5 and the Rockies 3. In terms of the Nats batting in this 5-4 win at the Rockies on Monday night, Nats have five runs, 11 hits, three walks. Like I said, no home runs in the game. Actually, a lot of singles in the game. And leading the way for the Nats offensively was perhaps Mr. Single, Alcides Escobar, who ended up having a really impressive game both offensively and defensively on Monday night. Three for five with an RBI single, two other singles, and a big defensive play. So Escobar in the Nats' three-run fourth inning, a leadoff full count infield single on a classic Alcides Escobar hit. It's a slow roller to the Rockies' third baseman, Ryan McMahon. The slow roller concluded a nine-pitch plate appearance in which Escobar was down in the count at one point, 0-2. If you ever meet someone who has no concept of Alcides Escobar as a batter, just show that someone that tape the video of that plate appearance, and that person will forever understand the phenomenon that is Alcides Escobar as a hitter. He, in the Nats, one run fifth, had an opposite field single to right center field. Escobar, in the Nats, one run ninth, a bases loaded RBI single to left field for a 5-3 Nats lead on a 1-2 pitch, and boy, did that run prove to be key. And then the big defensive play for the final out in the bottom of the eighth, Escobar with runners on first and second, two outs, Nats up 4-3, makes a good-looking backhanded stab, and then a great throw across his body to get Rymel Tapia, who can run on a ground out for the third out. A really good all-around game for the guy who has been a staple in the number two spot in the Nationals lineups here for months now, Alcides Escobar. I think you finally turned in his favor, haven't you, Al? You like him as your number two hitter, right? Well, I don't know about that, but I tell you what, he is impressive, and it's hard to ignore the good things that he brings to the table, and he had a really nice game on Monday night. He did. He hits with two strikes. He kind of understands the situations and what is needed of him. Like you said, a great defensive play to end that inning. He's batting 287 now, which in 2021 is a pretty high batting average. There's a lot to like there. Is he a an all-star shortstop, a franchise shortstop? No. But for what they've needed from him, he has been everything they could have asked and more and really has come through for them in so many of these spots that it feels like a lost art. There aren't that many hitters who can do what he does with two strikes. It's almost like he prefers to hit with two strikes as opposed to early in the count. He's just so good at getting the bat on the ball and finding the right place to hit the two. That insurance run in the night, that turned out to be really important. Didn't know it at the time, but they needed that run. And that was a nice job of him of actually turning on a pitch and driving it uh, to the pole side instead of just going the other way with it. So very little to say negative about him. He has done exactly what they could have asked of him and wouldn't have imagined this, but Alcides Escobar has been a godsend for the Nationals. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's a sort of, uh, yeah, you have to be honest about things. Okay, so like as number two batters go, He's not a number two batter. Like, even with the good things he's done this year, his overall offensive numbers aren't that good. All right? He's got an on-base percentage of 333, slugging 393. On a good team, Alcides Escobar is nowhere near the number two spot. But it's all relative. The Nats got him for cash considerations in a desperation trade in July from the Royals. So the fact that he's been this everyday player, the fact that he overall has done a nice job, the fact that he's done this nice job of having been statistically speaking, one of the worst players in the majors in the last season in which he played in the majors, 2018, is a credit to him. I think he should be back for next year. I think, ideally, he's more like your, say, as Drubal Cabrera for next season, your veteran infielder who you can deploy in various spots and not necessarily a starter. But all props to him. His career looked like it might have been done. And 
he's going to go into free agency this offseason, and he might get himself a decent contract for a year or two here from the Nats or from somebody else. And so from that standpoint, again, it's all relative, but from that standpoint, you bow down to all CDs Escobar and what he's accomplished this year. Yeah, I agree. I think ideally he is in more of that Cabrera kind of role than as your everyday shortstop. And and yes, in 2021, he doesn't put up the kind of numbers you expect from a number two hitter. In 1991, maybe. (laughs) That would have been the kind of number two hitter you're looking for in the early 90s, but not so much now. But you know what? It's fine. Like you said, he's done a great job for them. The one thing it'll be interesting to see next year, whether he's here or somewhere else, obviously he came here knowing that he didn't know if he'd ever get this chance again. And there's a certain motivation that comes with that of trying to prove to everyone that you deserve to be here all along. Now, what you've also seen sometimes from these guys is they get that next contract and it would be human nature to sort of relax a little bit and just assume that you're good to go and that you're going to finish out your career over several more years in the big leagues. And you have to be careful not to lose that edge. He's still got to play with the chip on his shoulder next year because he should not feel that anything is just being given to him. He needs to take that same approach that he had this year when the Nats acquired him and act as though he hasn't been in the big leagues in a couple of years and that he does still have to prove himself. So I'll be interested to see how that all works out for him in 2022. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine he's only getting like a one-year deal, maybe a one-year deal with an option. So, I mean, I don't think any team is going to give a guy in his mid-30s like this some multi-year deal that makes him feel like he's good to go for forever. But who knows? Maybe, you know, that one more payday is all he needed. But whatever the case is, it's like he looked on. So the fact that he's not done is a credit to him. He's done a nice job. He did a nice job on Monday night. Your Juan Soto update. So Juan Soto gets on base two times. Well, I guess he had an RBI ground out. So in the one run fifth inning, but in terms of the computations of the uh, on base percentage, Juan Soto goes one for four with a single, a walk and an RBI. Top of the first has a two out single into center field. Uh, and then that's one run fifth. He grounded into an RBI force out. And then in the top of the seventh came the walk because every game for the Nats has to include a Juan Soto walk, a two out Seven pitch walk. So for one now, Major League leading on base percentage is at 471. Major League leading walks total is at 139. And the batting average is at 321. That's number two now behind Trey Turner of the Dodgers. And these two guys, I mentioned this, I think, in a recent installment of the podcast. It's not just the National League, it's in the majors. Uh, these are the top two batters in the majors uh, when it comes to batting average. It's interesting during the broadcast, FP mentioned that Juan Soto, for the first time maybe all year, has looked tired to FP lately. Soto has cooled off a little bit. I mean, it, you know, it's all relative with him. But I don't know, has Soto looked tired to you in any way recently? Maybe just a little bit. There's a lot on his shoulders right now. And when you are on base all the time, yeah, it probably wears on you a little bit. I thought his last at bat in the ninth, he comes up with the bases loaded right after the Escobar insurance run single. And he's up in the count 2-0. And you're thinking, oh boy, here you go. This is going to be something that's going to put up some big numbers and help him pad his stats. And he ends up popping up a pitch to left field that wasn't even deep enough to get the runner home. And that was one of those that you wonder, you know, a week ago, maybe he uh, has a much better swing on that one than he did. You know, he's playing every day. He's on base all the time. So yeah, I can understand why there might be a little bit of fatigue there. I don't think he's going to (laughs) sit. I don't think that's in the plan at all. I think he's going to get every possible at bat he can get the rest of the way. And I think he's going to do just fine, but he's not quite at that video game level that we saw him a few days ago when he was reaching base four times every night. He is only reaching base two times a night, which you know what is still pretty good. But in this case, he reaches two out of five times. That's a 400 on base percentage. That's fantastic. But for him, it actually makes the number come down because he's up at 470 for the season. 
Yeah, that top of the ninth could have been a big deal. The Nats had the bases loaded, nobody out, and Soto and Bell coming up, and the Nats end up not tacking on any more runs. Only the uh, supreme run producer, Alcides Escobar, provided a run-scoring hit in that ninth inning, but the Nats do hold on uh, for the 5-4 win. A few other offensive standouts for the Nats on Monday night. Lane Thomas, the lane train, two more hits, two for five with a double and a single. Thomas in the Nats, one run fifth, a leadoff double to left center field, and then Thomas in the Nats, one run ninth, a bloop single to center field to load the bases. Uh, your Lane Thomas on base percentage for the season now for the Nats is at 379. He's slugging 522. He's been so good. Luis Garcia had two more hits in this game on Monday night. Garcia in the Nats, three run fourth, a one out bases loaded, two run single into right field for a 3 nothing Nats lead. He's had some big hits here lately. There's another one right there. And then Garcia in the top of the six, a one-out single to right field. But also for Luis Garcia in this game was really one of the worst throwing errors that you'll ever see. Uh, this this was bad. It didn't like cost the Nats from a standpoint of like a big inning, but this just was a throw into no man's land. Here's the pitch, swing and a hot shot right side. Right there, Garcia in the hole, has it but throws it away! He had all day and all night after fielding a hot shot, standing one foot onto the outfield grass. Instead of stepping to throw, he stood flat-footed and just whipped the ball right by Josh Bell off the screen in front of the Rockies' dugout for an error. He just makes one of the most casual throws you'll ever see. Honestly, one of the laziest throws you'll ever see. The throw was nowhere near Josh Bell. And Hilliard winds up at first base. So we've talked about this with this guy. He can be too cool for school. He can make the spectacular play. And then he can like be out to lunch on the most basic of plays. He gets two more hits. He's hitting better. I don't want to lose sight of that. But geez, I would hope that uh, Davey has a word or two with Luis about that throwing error. Oh, they did. And Davey said afterwards. I'm going to keep that message to myself. It wasn't a very good one. After we settled down, we talked about it. You saw Tim Bogar have a, a conversation with him in the dugout afterwards that they were laughing, but I'm sure there was a pretty forceful message. Now, to his credit, the next batter, he did a nice job to turn a double play. It was kind of nifty. But then on the final out of the game, he threw what Davey described as a changeup to Josh Bell. He almost botched that play as well. And it's why they keep saying you have to be fully engaged in, for every pitch every play in the game. And the, the first one, the bad air, it was like the ball got to him so quick and he knew he had all the time in the world to make the throw that he decided to use all that time and just stood there flat-footed and just kind of flung it over there and it wasn't anywhere close. And you've that's why you've got to keep your feet moving. You've got to play every play with intensity, not let up at all. That's what's ultimately going to determine what kind of player in the big leagues Luis Garcia is. He's got plenty of talent. We can see that. But can he consistently do it every at bat in, uh, at the plate, every play in the field? And that's just a mental thing. And you have to train yourself to be engaged into every single moment of a ball game and not relax at all. Hopefully, he's learning that now, and uh, it won't be an issue moving forward. But at the moment, it is still like the one little hang-up with him that you say we like what we see, but he needs to clean some things up. He's not at all a polished player yet. Carter Keboom did have another hit on Monday night, a one for three with a single and an intentional walk. The single, a leadoff opposite field single to right field in the Nats one run ninth. And Kbert Ruiz draws a walk, a bases loaded walk in the game on Monday night. Doesn't have a hit, but in the Nats three run fourth, uh, Ruiz draws a one out bases loaded eight pitch walk for a one nothing Nats lead despite 
having been down in the count at 1.02. Ruiz did get thrown out at third base on the Luis Garcia one-out bases loaded two-run single into right for a 3-0 Nats lead. Like I said, there were opportunities in this game for the Nationals to put up much more than five runs. Top of the ninth, you had a situation like that. In the three-run fourth, you did as well. Did you have an issue with Ruiz getting thrown out at third like that in that inning? Not so much because, you know, he's a trailing runner and, and Charlie Blackman made a perfect throw to get him. The bigger issue was if he had beaten the throw, and he almost did, he overslid the base and would have been tagged out. So, you know, the throw beat him in the end, so that didn't factor into it. But that would have been my bigger complaint was the slide as opposed to the idea of trying for the extra base. So I didn't have a huge problem with that. I thought the walk was a really good at bat, a really important at bat from him to show the patience in that spot with the bases loaded, not chase. We know that he's great at contact, doesn't strike out. He's only had four strikeouts since joining the Nationals. But you can get a little overzealous there. And knowing that you're good at making contact, you can swing at a pitch that's out of the zone. And he didn't. He fought through it. He drew the eight-pitch walk and drove in the run. So I actually thought that was one of the best at-bats of the game, You know, even though it resulted in a walk. Hey guys, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. It's great to be in the midst of baseball season. Nothing like watching a game. Great weather, cold drink, and a little action on FanDuel Sportsbook. If you have never bet on baseball before, now is the perfect time to give that a shot. FanDuel is letting new users swing for the fences risk-free as you'll get up to $1,000 back if your first bet doesn't win. And once you have an account, you can get up to $25 back each day if your same game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win all season long. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT. To get in on the action, that's FanDuel Sportsbook. Promo code chat games on Tuesday night include the Orioles hosting the Boston Red Sox at 7.05. Chris Sale is the Red Sox starter. The Sox are an essential must-win territory. We're not anticipating a repeat of 2011, although some of us wouldn't mind seeing that. But the Red Sox with Sale are the play. 21 plus and present in Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanal.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia, Tennessee. 1-800-889-9789 or in West Virginia. Visit www.1800gambler.com. 1-800-GAMBLER.NET. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season 
for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Tim Bogar is coming out, and they're going to say that's it. Corbin, six and two-thirds shutout innings, is not going to get a chance to finish the inning. Patrick Corbin, with a terrific outing, he overcame some early control woes and was able to pitch deep into the game and so far not allowed a run, although he is responsible for the runner at third. Game two for the Nats at the Rockies, Tuesday night at 840. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats' starting pitcher in what could be Corbin's final start of the season. And, you know, the baseball gods work in mysterious ways, sometimes work in uh, very appropriate ways. There's something poetic, there's something appropriate that Patrick Corbin, right, in this horrendous season, he has for weeks now, if not months now, been dead last in the majors among qualified pitchers in ERA. He's going to finish that way basically regardless of what happens the rest of the season. But that his potential final start of the season comes at Coors Field. It's almost like one last little message from the baseball gods, one last test from the baseball gods of Patrick Corbin. And with him having been better lately, and he has been better lately, it's been nice to see this. He's been good in three of his last four outings. If he does pitch well on Tuesday night, I would be tempted if I'm Davey to call it a season on Corbin, just from a standpoint of that's a nice relative finish to his year, what has been an awful year. Now, if he gets shellacked, then I think maybe you give him one more outing. But he has been better lately, and I think it's actually going to be really intriguing to see how he performs on Tuesday night. I feel like I haven't said that in a long time with a Patrick Corbin star because it's been so fatiguing the season that he's had. But this is actually interesting to me, how he performs on Tuesday night. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. And I think this is why they haven't decided for sure what they're doing this weekend, that they want to see how both Josiah Gray pitched on Monday and now how Patrick pitches on Tuesday. So here are the the key numbers. And I know he's blocking this all out and he's not thinking about it. But he goes into this start with a 9-15 and record and a 592 ERA, which, like you said, is the highest in the majors. Now, I mean, this is small things here. And this one start does not ultimately change what his season was. This was an awful season for him. They all know it. He knows it. But there has not been a starter in the big leagues who had 16 losses and an ERA over six since Jason Marquis in 2006 with the Cardinals. Does Patrick Corbin want to be the next one to do that? 16 losses in a six ERA. That's an awful season. Not that 15 losses in a 5.9 ERA is better, but it's slightly better and at least emotionally might feel a little bit different. So the challenge, the goal for him to me in this one is keep the ERA under six. Don't take the loss. And then we see whether he gets another one or not. This is what it's come to with Patrick Corbin. But I agree it would be a big difference for him to go into the offseason feeling a little bit better about himself. It would be something like three out of his last four starts would have been pretty good. That would go a long way as opposed to a really rough outing that leaves you with an ERA well north of six. So I agree. I'm kind of intrigued to see what happens here, and I have no idea. It seems like a really tough assignment for him. That lineup, that ballpark, the season he's having, but maybe he can dig deep and find one last start in him that allows him to go home and feel a little bit better about himself. 
Yeah, if he's good, it's actually four good outings over his last five. The one bad outing, though, in that stretch was a game against the Rockies, a 6 nothing loss to Colorado at Nationals Park on September 18th. Corbin in that game, six runs, five earned in four innings. I've wondered about this in an alternate universe in which the Nationals are in contention this season, but Corbin still has the season that he is having. And I know you could say, well, one wouldn't happen without the other. Like the Nationals would not be in contention if Corbin pitched like he has this year. But let's say for argument's sake that he did, do you think Corbin would have remained in the rotation? Like, it says a lot that he's made all of these starts this year, that he's accumulated all of these decisions this year because the Nationals haven't had anyone better to go to. But if the Nationals were in a a fight with the Braves, you know, in a fight for the National League or a National League wildcard spot and Corbin was having this season, would he not have been demoted to the bullpen long ago? Or do you think that contract would have kept him in the rotation? Yeah, it's a good question. It depends on what the alternatives were, but you could even say that they may have reached a point that said, we need to go find somebody else, whoever that is, who's got to be better than this. So yeah, I think, you know, what I was just describing about nobody since Jason Marquis in what, 15 years has had that kind of season. That's in part because rarely does a guy have those bad of numbers and continue to keep making starts and get 30 plus starts in a season. So it was both the combination of a lack of other options for them. And to be honest, the state of the team, that it's not like they desperately needed to try to put a better starter out there and try to win some of these games down the stretch. Now, if they are in a race, it may be a different story and maybe they would have done something like that. But I mean, stop and think about two years ago where Patrick Corbin was and where this team was. And now think about where they are now, both as on a team level and on a personal level for him. And it has been quite a fall from grace. It has, and it would maybe be more palatable if not for the Strasburg situation, but because it's Strasburg and Corbin, two mega money contract guys, each of whom has given you very little over the last two years. I mean, at least Corbin has given you some innings. I mean, Strasburg is a little different. That's more of a health thing. But like the fact that it's both of those guys, that's been particularly tough to take. You tell us what you think. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. I want to take a moment here to thank all of you who have already donated uh, to what Tim Shover set up regarding donations to the cause uh, for the Nats Chat podcast, donations to cover some of the production costs. We will be coming to you during the offseason. It's not going to be like a regular schedule, but basically as uh, events warrant, uh, we will be doing episodes of the Nats Chat podcast, and we will be back with you for next season. But the response to the donations really has been impressive. And we thank all of you for that. If you would like to participate, if you would like to get yourself a a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt, you can address all of those things by going to this website, natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we're going to leave you with a voice memo here, a tale of October 2019, a World Series memory. This one comes to us from Joey Flintz of Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. Hey, guys, love the podcast. Uh, checking in here from hostile uh, Mets territory here in North New Jersey uh, to talk about the lost game of the 2019 postseason run and my unique experience with it. With all the zany things that happened in that magical month in Nats history, one game gets lost in the shuffle. Game two of the NLDS against the Dodgers. In the grand scheme of things, it was just as big as the wildcard game, NLDS game five, the entire NLCS and World Series games six and seven. I felt like the Nats had a pretty good chance to upset the Dodgers in that series, but my reasoning turned out to be faulty. 
If you remember, Patrick Corbin had owned the Dodgers in his career. He always had tremendous success against them with the D-backs, and one of his best starts in 2019 was at Dodger Stadium. So when the Nats avoided having to use Corbin in the wildcard game, I thought it set them, the, set them up nicely going into Game 1 in L.A. and likely another start in the series. Obviously, that got turned upside down when the Nats lost Game 1, even though Corbin wasn't bad in the game. At that point, I felt the Dodgers were a heavy favorite. That said, the Nats had Strasburg, who is establishing himself as one of the great postseason pitchers of all time, going in Game 2 against a, kind of a wild card in Clayton Kershaw at that point. It goes without saying that there was no chance the Nats could win three in a row versus that Dodgers team, so Game 2 was a must-win. I remember it was a Friday night, late-night game, West Coast. I was nervous and distracted all day, but the plus was my kids would be in bed before first pitch and I could watch Sands' interruption. Uh, my nerves were calmed early, the offense gave Strasburg an early 3 nothing lead, and he was completely dominant. Unfortunately, he was going on short rest due to three innings of relief against Milwaukee, so he didn't pitch particularly deep, and a combination of the lineup adding on and the bullpen holding it down was a dicey proposition at that point. Anyway, the Dodgers get it to 3-2, ugh, as Dribble Cabrera made it 4-2, yay, but a bad base running mistake potentially cost him a crooked inning, ugh. So the stage was set for Max Scherzer out of the bullpen with a two-run lead in the eighth. I, for one, simultaneously thought it was 100% the right move by Davey, but was also scared because his history of relieving in the postseason wasn't exactly sterling with the Tigers and Nats. So watching him strike out the side in that amazing inning was a therapeutic experience for me and many others, I'm sure. Uh, the Nats weren't able to add on the top of the ninth, putting the game in Dana Hudson's hands with a two-run lead versus the middle of the Dodgers' order. And at that point, something inside me said, you know what, I can't actually watch this. It's too much. I can't handle it. And I kid you not, I turned off the TV right then and there and devised a plan. I decided to put my phone on do not disturb mode, leave the TV off, turn off my laptop, and just do something else for 30 minutes with my nervous energy. My thinking was 30 minutes was enough time to deliver a result, good or bad. It was almost certain to be over by then or in extra innings maybe. I would nervously check my phone in 30 minutes and I would immediately know the score because regardless of what happened, my home screen would have score alerts and text messages from friends. And I would just find out cold turkey. Is the season very much alive or did the Nats bullpen blow another one? This is an interminable 30 minutes. It felt like hours, but I stuck to my plan. I didn't even end up doing anything, really. I literally just walked in circles around my basement in the dark for 30 minutes with pure anxiety and fear, just hoping it would go the right way for once. That Dodgers team was such a machine, and Hudson wasn't exactly Mariano Rivera. And remember, it's probably between 1.32 a.m. Eastern time at this point at, at night. And I checked the clock upstairs and realized it's, you know, it's time. It's been 30 minutes. It's time to face your fears. I go to pick up my phone, uh, thinking that a lot of messages on my home screen is a bad sign. I'm unlikely to have a bunch of messages after a win, but a loss would ignite a bunch of ranting and venting texts from friends. So my hope is that I'll turn the phone on. There'll just be some MLB alert that just says something like Nats even series in LA, yada, yada, yada. I finally muster the courage to look at the phone and it's lit up like a Christmas tree. My heart sinks and my thought is, oh no, they did it again, didn't they? Vividly remember the top text is from my boss who is not a Nats fan and doesn't text me often. And all the text said was Rendon, dot, dot, dot. Oh no, what could that mean? Hopefully Rendon didn't have to hit again. Did he make an error to lose the game? Time stopped for me, but in reality, it was probably only a couple seconds before I scrolled more and saw the desired final score update I was hoping to see. I let out a guttural scream from my basement, even though I didn't even watch the game live. It was so big, you just felt it. Their season was very much alive. They could beat these guys. 
I then decided to watch the bottom of the ninth on DVR before checking play-by-play or reading anything that happened. I wanted to experience it without knowing the sequence of events. And pretty quickly I realized my decision not to watch in real time was the correct move for me. I think that would have caused severe long-term damage to my health. Goodness, what a crazy inning that was. How can we never talk about Rendon's catch on Bellinger's pop-up for the second out of that ninth inning? That was absolutely insane. Only a handful of third basemen get to that ball and make that play. That really may have saved their season. That insane catch made it one runner on, two outs, instead of two runners on, one out for Max Muncy, who had destroyed the Nats in that series. They would probably lose that game if Rendon doesn't make that play, and it's just kind of been forgotten among everything else that happened. Then you have Davey making one of the boldest managerial moves in postseason history, intentionally walking Muncy. Then Hudson walking Will Smith to load the bases with two outs. It was all capped by that epic Seagrap bat that seemingly took 70 pitches to decide, with the gutsy slider to end it. Hudson's emotional reaction was an amazing scene that has stuck with me. I just wanted to give that game some love, even though I chickened out and I'm not ashamed to admit as much. We all process these things in different ways, and I just couldn't handle it in the moment. And in many ways, that game was a precursor of what was to come the rest of that run. Strasburg dominating, a bullpen that got hot at the right time and figured it out, and starting pitchers getting huge outs in relief. Amazingly, they never had a nerve-wracking ninth inning the rest of the way. The rest, as they say, is history. Keep up the awesome work with this podcast. It's been a blessing and a difficult year to digest. Thanks. Hudson delivers. Swinging a pop-up. Left field, down the line, Rendon chasing into foul ground. Now fair territory, makes the diving catch for the out. He had trouble to the last moment. Rendon, who's excellent on the pop-ups, Soto wasn't going to get there. Rendon, the only man on the left side, had to reach back and falling back over, directly over his head to make the two-handed catch and fell down and held on. And Bellinger's out on one pitch. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.